0: to the book of James, chapter 1, we will be focusing on verses 9 through 12, but I'll read starting in verse 1 for context. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing But the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you. Help us as we open up your word. Give us wisdom from above. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to apply your word to our hearts. Help us not to just be hearers only, but doers of your word. To receive your word with meekness, with joy and gladness and submission. Help me as I bring forth your word. Give me wisdom and understanding. Lead and guide my my words and my thoughts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. While my original plan was to spend a little time finishing up the proper way to respond to trials... And then spend most of our time together looking at the wrong response to trials. But as I got deeper into the text, I realized that was not going to happen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at responding to trials biblically, part two. And then, Lord willing, next time I am here, we will be looking at the wrong response to trials. In verses 13 through 17. So we'll actually be focusing on verses 6 through 12, but I want to do a brief review so that we can remember this in context and also for anyone who was not here last week. So last Sunday we looked at verses 1 through 8 of James chapter 1, and the theme we looked at was responding to trials biblically. And we basically broke this down into five main headings. Heading number one was Submission to Christ. And we saw that James called himself a slave of God and of Christ. And I made the point that, that being fully submitted to Christ prepares a Christian to deal with trials in a biblical way. And only when we are fully submitted to Christ, we are prepared to endure any trial that God may give us. The slave of Christ is eager to do the Master's will, even when this means going through trials that the master wants us to go through. And if you remember, I say that the proud man says, how dare God put me through this? But the submissive slave of God in Christ says God's will be done. And then our second heading was the duty of joy. And here we looked at the command to respond to trials joyfully. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And we defined a trial as something that tries or tests us in this particular situation, our faith. And we said that trials can be large and devastating. This past week, a family that I know of lost their eight-year-old son to cancer. That is a major trial. But we also said that trials can be everyday things. For example, someone being rude to us in public. How do we respond to that? And James tells us that trials will come. He does not say if they come, but when they come. Spurgeon said God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without a trial. James tells us that trials are guaranteed to come, and they are reminders to rejoice. Not reasons to complain, not reasons to sin, but reminders to rejoice. And we answered the question, why should we rejoice in trials? And that led to our third heading, which was the purpose of trials. And here we looked at the motivation for responding to trials with joy. James says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And we looked at the definition of endurance or patience given by Douglas Moo. And Moo says this This word points to the idea of remaining under. The picture is of a person successfully carrying a heavy load for a long time. So we said bearing trials is like spiritual weightlifting. As you patiently bear trials over time, you will be able to carry heavier loads for longer periods of time. You are building up endurance, spiritually speaking. I also pointed out that endurance, as good as it is, is not the end goal. And that led to our fourth heading, which was a desire for Christ-likeness. And this, I pointed out, is the end goal of our trials, to make us more like Christ. James says in verse 4, But let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We are not to despise our trials and desire to get rid of them as soon as possible, we are told to let endurance have its perfect work. It's like a, a marinade or, or something of that nature. There's always this temptation to be impatient. You, you put it in there, I need to hurry up and take it out. No, no just leave it in there for a while and let it, let it do its job. That's what this is like. We need to endure in our trials and not try to escape them. Spurgeon put it this way, none of us can come to the highest maturity without enduring the summer heat of trials. As the sycamore fig never ripens if it be not bruised, as the corn does not leave the husk without threshing, and as the wheat makes no fine flour until it be ground, so are we of little use till we are afflicted. Why should we be so eager to escape such benefits? The first four headings can be summarized by saying that we should rejoice in our trials knowing that God is using them to make us more like Christ. And although trials are painful, the Lord is using them not to hurt us, but to sanctify us. Pruning hurts, but it is necessary for growth. When you put the gold into the fire, the fire is hot. But the dross is consumed, and the gold is refined. Spurgeon put it this way, The farmer does not sift his wheat because he dislikes it, but the opposite. He sifts it because it is precious. And thou, child of God, thy trials and changes and constant catastrophes and afflictions are no proofs of want of affection on the part of the Most High, but the very contrary. They are not evidence of his hatred for you. God's trials is evidence of his love for you. And then I pointed out last week that even though we know this, we know that trials come for our good, but even though we know this, it is often hard to endure. And this led to our fifth heading, Divine Wisdom. And here we consider the fact that none of us are wise enough to make it through our trials alone. We need wisdom. But James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it generously and without reproach so long as we ask in faith. And I pointed out that God is not stingy with his wisdom. When we ask, he gives generously. And not only does he give generously, but he does not reproach us for asking. He does not say, you've asked for this too many times. You've come to me one too many times. He does not reproach us for asking. In fact, the Lord is glorified by us showing our dependence upon him through our constant prayers for wisdom. And last week we left off here. And I simply pointed out that James says we are to ask in faith with no doubting. But I did not expand on verses 6 through 8, so I want to start there this morning. And this will be the, the sixth heading, the sixth thing we need to endure trials biblically, and that is unwavering faith. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. The second part of that statement helps us understand the first part. What does it mean to ask in faith? It means to ask without doubting. We are not to pray for wisdom and doubt that we will receive it. That is not a humble thing to do. Sometimes we can almost have this false humility. Well, I can pray for this and, and, you know, I leave it at that. In a very real sense, we, we depend on God, but, but it is not humble to, to actually disbelieve God when God is saying pray and do not doubt. But why is James saying this? He's not saying this for no reason. I think he is addressing a very real issue that many of us struggle with. We go through the motions of praying for help because we know it's the Christian thing to do, right? But do we actually believe that he will give the help and grace needed to endure? For whatever reason, we pray and we doubt How many of us struggle with trials, and and when we pray for help and wisdom, we don't really expect God to answer. Dear friends, you know your heart. You you know if that is true for you. But, But why is it that we doubt this way? Well, first, I think there are some who doubt God's ability to answer their prayers, Perhaps you are a new believer and you don't really know God that well. You don't know that God can actually answer your prayer. Maybe you think that your trial is so large and so difficult that you simply don't believe God can help you. But why would a Christian have such doubts? Perhaps you don't understand or believe in God's sovereignty. You are somehow limiting God's power in your mind. And and maybe this is because you don't know your Bible well, or perhaps you have failed in your trials so often that you doubt God's power to help you. But, dear friends, if you have failed in your trials, it has nothing to do with God's power. And we will look at that next time. We will look at why we fail in our trials. But, dear friend, if that describes you, let me encourage you to read your Bible. And pay attention to how God sovereignly controls all things. From the very speaking of the world into existence, to forming man from the dust of the earth, God demonstrates his power and control. He is the God who parted the Red Sea. The God who made the sun stand still for a day. The God who destroyed Egypt with plagues to to demonstrate his power. The God who humbled the great and powerful, proud king, Nebuchadnezzar. Dear friends, James, in the fifth chapter of this book, tells us about a man who understood this truth. He said Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah, a man with a nature like ours. But he knew the power and sovereignty of God. That God executes his promises. That he is a a big God with with control. So Elijah prayed that it would rain and, and then prayed that it would cease. And he did not do this in vain. He actually believed that God could do it. Let this be an example to us that we do actually have a sovereign God who is in control of all things and He orchestrates everything through His divine providence. Or perhaps you know without a doubt that God is able to answer your prayers. That's not the source of your doubt, but, but maybe you doubt God's willingness to answer your prayers. Maybe you say to yourself, I know that God can help me through this trial. I know he can give me wisdom. I'm reformed. I know God is sovereign, but is he willing? Maybe that is the source of your doubt. And I dare say this is probably the more common cause of doubt in reformed circles. But, but what would cause such doubt? Doubt. Well, we could speak of many different things, but I think one of the big causes is what we can call reactionary theology. Perhaps your theology of prayer is formed as a reaction to bad theology, namely the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And here's what I mean. We have a tendency to run as far away from bad theology as we can. And so we hear bad theology and we run as fast as we can in the opposite direction, often going too far. We hear the prosperity teachers misusing scripture, saying things such as, God wants you to be filthy rich. He wants you to have a Mercedes, he wants you to have a BMW, he wants you to have a five million dollar mansion on Lake Michigan. But your problem is that you don't ask in faith. So so we hear things like that, and we want to run away from it, rightfully so. We hear people saying that you have not because you ask not, and they're speaking about the Mercedes-Benz. And so we can actually develop a negative connotation with words like you have not because you ask not. But guess what? That's actually in the Bible. You see, we fight so hard... Against people misusing verses about God answering prayer, that we forget that God does actually answer prayer. James actually does say, You have not because you ask not. He does actually say, Ask in faith, and it will be given to you. Now, of course, we must view these verses in the proper context, but they exist. Let us make sure that we are not ignoring such verses in fear that we may be considered charismatic. I can speak from experience that I have a great tendency to do that. Sometimes you ask for something with confidence and you believe that God will give it, and then I think to myself, wait a minute, am I being charismatic right now? But Scripture actually says this. And if we go to the opposite direction to, to actually thinking that that these verses don't actually mean anything, then we are also wrong, just like the person who says this verse means that God wants you to be filthy rich. So no matter the cause of our doubt, such doubt is harmful. And not only is it displeasing to God for us not to trust him, but it is also harmful to the person experiencing a trial. It's not humility. It's actually harmful. Now, how does James describe the man who prays but doubts? He says, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I would imagine you know something about water here in Holland. You have enough of it. What happens once it gets really windy outside? What happens to the water? The waves come up. And you can see the, the, the motion of the waves in the water that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is how James describes the man who prays and doubts. He's just at the whims of, of, of whatever. He's unstable. He's unstable. You look at water that is being tossed by the wind, and it is unstable. John Gill says this person is troubled, restless, unquiet, and impatient. And he is fickle, inconstant, unstable, and unsettled. And is easily carried away with every wind of doctrine, temptation, and lust. Dear friends, this describes a man who is in danger. One who prays and doubts is demonstrating a lack of trust in God and an immature faith. MacArthur points out that such immaturity leads to the even greater danger of being carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. If you are doubting God, not trusting Him, then who are you trusting? James also describes this man as a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is a serious condition. John Gill says that that such a man does not call upon God in truth and in the sincerity of his soul. He draws nigh to him with his mouth and honors him with his lips, but his heart is far from him. Here's the problem. Do you say that you have faith in Christ, but doubt God's word? Doubt that he will give you wisdom when you ask for it. Doubt that he is willing or able to do what he says he will do. When you pray and doubt, you're actually being a hypocrite. You are saying that you are a man or woman of faith, but your doubt says otherwise. You pray with your mouth, but disbelieve with your heart. Why would you do that? James says if you do that, you're, you're double-minded. You're unstable. Why would you actually pray if you didn't actually believe that it was doing something? That's not even logical. Why would you do it? Your doubts say that you don't trust the promises of God. It says that you doubt the integrity of His Word. It says that you don't trust that He loves and cares for you. Dear friend, I am not going to sugarcoat this and say that that doubt is okay. Okay. Scripture says it is not. It says that the man who does this is double-minded. He's unstable. And yes, there are times when you struggle and you feel like the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because your faith is being tested. But dear friends, if your faith is being tested and you doubt, what does that say about your faith? That's the point here. He's testing your faith. And you, pr- you pray that God would, would help you during the, the trial of your faith, but you don't actually have faith because you don't believe that he will actually help you when he said that he will. But what is the result of such doubt? James says, Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The man who asks but doubts is told that God won't answer. Spurgeon said that prayers which are filled with doubt are requests for refusals. When you pray to God but doubt that he will give you what you need, it displeases him. And since you are praying as a hypocrite, he does not answer. You are merely going through the motions of prayer, but you don't even believe in what you are doing. Why would you pray for wisdom if you don't actually believe that God will give it? You are merely going through religious motions. Is that your prayer life? I know I'm supposed to do this. I know it's the right thing to do. I don't actually believe that it does anything, but I'm told to do it, so I better do it. James is saying God will not answer the prayers of such a man. But not only will this person not have their prayers answered, but such a person is totally unstable. Dear friends, what do we need during a trial? We need stability, we need to be rooted. And ground it to endure, but, but such a person is tossed like a wave in the wind. What a terrible condition to be in during a trial. What a dangerous situation to be in during a, during a trial, to, to know that, that not only is God not going to answer you because you don't believe him, but because you don't believe him, you're just whimsical. You believe this and you believe that. You pray here and you don't actually believe. You're just all over the place. And this is a recipe for disaster during a trial. To get through trials, we need unwavering faith. It's okay. Nobody's going to say you're Pentecostal because you ask and believe. And if they accuse you of that, just say, I'm being biblical here. But read the context. Pray and believe. And when you feel like your faith is wavering because of your trial, it is being tested, cry out with sincerity to the one who is the author and finisher of our faith. That leads to our final heading. The seventh thing we need is supernatural humility. Verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls and his beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. Some would disassociate these verses from 1 through 8, but I think they fit really well. When we look at these verses in the context of, of responding to trials biblically, they fit right in. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. But the rich in his humiliation. What does it mean to glory in something? The Greek word can mean to rejoice in or to boast in. Let the lowly, our poor brother, rejoice or boast in his exalted position as a Christian. Poverty can be a real test, a very real trial especially when one becomes poor through traumatic circumstances. Now remember that James is writing to Jewish Christians who are scattered abroad because of persecution. I would venture to say that many of them lost their wealth in that process and became poor. Uh, imagine that trial, being persecuted and losing your wealth. And not only that, these are, these are Jewish Christians so not only do pagans not like them, but Jews don't like them either. And poverty was probably a very serious trial to them. James is saying that the poor Christian glory are boast in the fact that he is a child of God. What better privilege and standing could you have? Don't worry about wealth. Wealth does not define you. If you glory in your exalted position as a child of God and wealth never comes to you, guess what? You're okay. You can live without it. Likewise, the rich man is not to glory in his riches, but in his humiliation because his wealth will pass away like a flower in a field scorched by the hot sun. It may seem like humiliation for the wealthy to lose things. James is saying you are humbled by losing things. Glory or rejoice in that trial. You lose everything in your bank account tomorrow. As hard as it will be, glory in that trial. Because it will humble you. And here's the point of all this. If you are going to respond appropriately to trials, you must not be attached to perishable things. That's the point. We must have a great deal of humility from God to respond to trials appropriately and it takes a great amount of humility to not get caught up in identifying ourselves with our earthly possessions. It is easy for the rich man to take pride in his wealth It is also easy for the poor man to feel like the only way to gain some pride and feel accomplished is by pursuing and gaining wealth. In both of those cases, wealth is a thing that people believe is worth glorying in. Trials come to those who are rich and those who are poor. The temptation of the poor is to think that they need wealth to get through trials. I would not have these trials if I were rich. The temptation of the rich is to despise any trial that would seem to take away any other wealth. What James is saying is fading. As Christians, our hope and joy is not tied to our physical circumstances. Glory or rejoice in the fact that you are a child of God and glory in the fact that he uses Trials to humble you. And by the way, for added motivation, James says, consider the fleeting nature of riches. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. If you are a rich person, why would you glory in that, knowing that it is fading away? If you are a poor person, why would you desire to pursue that with your life, knowing also that it is fading away? In either case, it is fading away. Dr. MacArthur puts it this way, the point here is whether poor or rich, trials come into life to humble us. And true humility, whether it possesses much of this world's goods or little, true humility says my resources are in God. When with a truly humble heart, you say whatever my situation in this life is, is, whether it be poor or rich, my identity is in Christ. No matter what the Lord takes away from you or allow others to take away from you, you can be content and respond to trials with joy because you are not attached to those things. If you are glorying in riches or whatever possessions you have and the Lord removes those things through trials, you are going to have a hard time rejoicing. If you see your identity and your in your career and your finances then your world is turned upside down when when trials remove those things. But if you are humble and not tied to your earthly possessions, when you are faced with trials that threaten your possessions or status in this world, you can say with Job, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is the conclusion of these first 11 verses? What happens when we respond to trials biblically, enduring faithfully, allowing our trials to make us more like Christ? We are told there is a reward. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There is a crown of life, When we have been tested by trials and approved, we receive the crown of life. And here we receive more motivation for enduring. Not only do we get to become more like Christ through our trials, but we are rewarded with the crown of life. James says, Blessed is the man. This is the same word used In the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Same word. I like how MacArthur summarizes this word. He says, it carries the idea of a profound inner joy and satisfaction. A joy that only the Lord himself is able to bestow on those who, for his sake and in his power, faithfully and patiently endure and conquer trials. So blessed or profoundly joyful is the man who endures trials. Now who is the man who endures trials? This is not a person who never fails. Ask Peter about failure. This is not a person who never responds to trials in a sinful way. We each probably do it every single day this is a person whose faith remains intact after testing this is a person who has gone through all of his trials in life while keeping their faith in Christ until the very end the person who keeps their faith until the end is said to be approved Their faith has been tested and approved. And what does the believer who has been tested and approved receive? The crown of life. And the word for crown here is not to speak of royalty. Rather, it is like the the wreath placed on the head of the winner of a race. It is a crown of victory. MacArthur says a more literal translation could be the crown which is life. That is eternal life. So the crown of life is, in fact, eternal life. The man who is tested and approved is crowned with eternal life. One thing we should note about this James says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now notice, the crown of life is not the reward of those who endure. Sorry, the the, the crown of life is the reward of those who endure, but not because they endure, not because they earn it. He says they receive it because the Lord has promised it to those who love him. So eternal life is not earned by those who are strong enough to endure trials without losing faith. Those who endure trials without losing faith give evidence that the Lord has given them a true saving faith. Because the Lord has given us true faith, we endure to the end. And because of our true faith, we receive eternal life. So the point is, none of this is works righteousness. He's talking about faith. And he says, which the Lord has promised to those, not who have faith, but those who love him. And it's not works righteousness. Enduring to the end, dear friend, is evidence that you have truly trusted in Christ for salvation. Eternal life is a promise to those with faith. And if your faith is sincere, it will endure. And as I just noted a minute ago, James says to those who love him. Why does he do this? I think this is important. What James is saying is that love for God and enduring trials in faith are synonymous. You cannot say that you love God if you don't have a true faith that endures trials. One commentator said, James clearly associates faithful perseverance under trial with a genuine love for God. A genuine Christian is not someone who at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ, but he is a person who demonstrates true faith by an ongoing love for God that cannot be damaged, much less destroyed by troubles and affliction, no matter how severe Are long lasting. If you love God, you will endure. The only way you actually truly love God is if you have a true faith, and the true faith endures. Difference, don't say that you love God if every time you are faced with a trial you sin. And that is your pattern of life. Well, I love God, but every time I'm faced with any type of temptation, I just sin every single time. We're not talking about stumbling here. We're talking about a lifestyle of of never responding to trials in a biblical way. Can you really say that you love God if that is the case? James says, if you love God, you have true faith. And if you have a true faith, you will endure trials. And yes, you will stumble. Yes, you will sin. But, but this is his whole point of endurance. You, you learn from this and you grow so that over time, the, the amount of time that you stumble in your trials grows less and less. That's called Sanctification. Dear friends, let me conclude by encouraging you to persevere in your trials. They are hard. They are difficult. They are painful. They they are stressful. They they test the limits of our patience. They, They test the limits of our anger. But they are for our good. And they won't last forever. Consider that. There is a reward of eternal life. Your trials will not last forever. Even if your life is filled with trial after trial, you can still trust that that it is for your good. And you can persevere knowing such trials won't last forever. And the pain of those trials, borrowing from the apostles' language, are but light affliction compared to the bliss you will experience in heaven. If your life on earth is is one big trial. Do not say God must hate me. No it is a sign of God's love for you and though it may be hard you are becoming more and more like Christ and one day those trials will come to an end and you will receive eternal life. I leave you with these words from Spurgeon. He said blessed be God our calamities are matters of time but our safety is a matter of eternity remember that in the midst of your trial it is only a matter of time it will not last forever but your safety is a matter of eternity if you are a believer you are safe in God's hand and you will receive eternal life. Difference endure, knowing that the end is good. It leads to, to something good. And consider that in the in the, the heat of your trial, there is an end to this and a reward. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you once again for your word. Father, we thank you for the trials that you bring our way to sanctify us. Lord, forgive us for our ingratitude. You know that we often despise trials even though you are using them for our good. Father, help us to endure our trials with joy, with gladness, with patience, keeping in mind the end result. Help us not to be just so fixated on the pain of trials that we we fail to think of the result. Grant us all wisdom in the trials that we face each and every day. We thank you that you have given us these instructions that we may know how to respond to trials in a way that is truly pleasing to you and beneficial to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.